Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. The Bible is one long love story about God, the faithful husband. I want us to learn together this morning about faithful desire as a characteristic of the kind of relationships that we're made for. So we're in the book of Matthew. We're learning about relationships and the seven dynamics of love from Jesus in this book. And what we're going to see this morning is that faithfulness is the essence of the love of God that uproots the idol of lust in our hearts. And so I want to welcome Bethlehem, who's joining us live this morning. If you're a guest here with us, we usually only, we try and keep our streams to once a month between campuses, but I, I really felt from the Lord that this is a message that you all needed to receive from me in particular this morning. So we're going to read together in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. And the title of the message this morning is Faithful Desire. Faithful Desire. So these are the words of Jesus. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. So I said at the beginning of this series that we're not focusing on the pathologies of relationships, but we're intending to offer a picture of healthy relationships in the kingdom. And so as we get into this passage today, I think we're going to discover that the underlying picture of health that's being painted here is Covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. But it won't have escaped your notice that Jesus is addressing pathologies in this passage. We can't avoid that. We can't turn away from that. And I think he's showing us three things. Number one, sex is much more valuable than we think. Secondly, sex is far less valuable than Christ. And thirdly, faithful love divorces desire for the sake of relationship, whereas lust divorces relationship for the sake of desire. All right, so let's get into this. Now, the first question that we need to deal with is, what does Jesus mean by lust in this passage? And we've spoken on this a little bit before in our master class series, but the word for lust in this passage in the Greek is just a regular word meaning strong desire. So this is not a condemnation of 
desire in itself. Jesus himself says in Luke 22, he he says, I have greatly desired, I have greatly lusted to eat this meal with you, his his disciples. And so the problem is not desire. In, In Buddhism, for instance, the problem, the whole problem with humanity is desire. So get rid of desire. But the Bible is full of desire, all the way through. So in the Psalms and the Song of Solomon, it's full of desire for God, but it's also full of sexual desire. It is not condemned. It's even celebrated. And even being tempted with desire for something that's wrong is not sinful. Experiencing temptation is not sinful because Jesus was tempted and yet was without sin. And so, Jesus isn't just talking about a strong desire or even temptation. What he's talking about is something that is chosen. It's a type of desire that is chosen. And I think we get a little bit closer to the intention in this passage when we realize that the, it's this word that the translators used for the word covet in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And so this is not just a question of desire. It's a question of how that desire is attached to something or someone. So there's an intentionality to it. There's a seeking it out. And the point is fixating your strong desire on possessing something that doesn't belong to you, or in this case, someone who you're not covenanted to. And I think even further than that, there's a sense in this passage that, uh, or or even in in the Ten Commandments, there's a sense of desiring that person, not as a person, but as a thing. There's kind of a, a, well, even in the Ten Commandments, the, the wife is listed along with other items of property. Donkey or house or servants or, and so, this coveting, this lusting, it's like, it's kind of what you could call the thingification of a person. And sexual lust is turning them into a mere object of sexual gratification. And so here's, here's the summary. According to Jesus, lust intentionally reduces a person to an object of sexual desire. I think that's really what he's getting, getting at in this passage. Now, our culture gives us really mixed messages about lust, all right? Because on the one hand, the, the hashtag MeToo movement that began, I think 2017 really took off, would absolutely affirm the statement that it is wrong to objectify a woman or, or a person in general. And so there's been a extremely strong condemnation of, of particularly men in positions of power who have done this. You know, you think of Harvey Weinstein and so many others have been rightfully condemned for this. But then again, we're also told that anything that consenting adults want to do is perfectly right and okay for them to do, including selling their bodies, selling their images as objects of sexual desire. And so, you know, if there's one thing the internet has taught us, it's that sex really does sell. And we're surrounded by the endless thingification of people for the purpose of selling products and and promoting all sorts of things, satisfying cravings. And all of it is 
on the justification of consent. Now, recently, even secular feminists have begun to argue that consent, we're finding out consent is a really shaky foundation to build a sexual ethic on. (laughs) Because it's so hard to determine. It's so hard to actually judge when consent has actually happened or whether a person is able to consent. It's, it, it's, it gets you into a total, you know, gray area that you can't build anything solid on. And so the reality, what, what, they, what they're arguing is that the reality is that much of what's been labeled freedom since the sexual revolution in, in the 60s is really, it's mainly benefit, benefited male desire at the expense of women. And so... Just like everything else, sex has become another consumer item. We're talking a lot about sex in this series, aren't we? <laughs> you either like that and, and find it interesting or you think it's really inappropriate. But I think we have to talk about this stuff. Because Jesus talks about it, right? And like we saw last week, you know, if you were to remove, if you were just to remove anger and lust from the equation, almost all of humanity's problems would disappear. They're such, they're so at the root of all the things that tear apart our relationships. So now if you, if you take the world's vision of sexuality and you take it to its logical conclusion, it takes you to a really deep contradiction. I don't know if you've noticed this. So on the one hand, it tells us sex is, is just a, it's a meaningless act. It's a, it's a bodily function, just like any other one. So as long as two people are consenting or any number of people are consenting, the only rule is to avoid harm right? Because there's nothing special about it. So that's what it says on the one hand. But on the other hand, it says sex is the pinnacle of human existence. You can't possibly be happy or fulfilled without it. And so there's this deep contradiction, all right? So we're coming to Jesus and we're asking, Jesus, what do you have to say about this? The first thing he says is that sex is far more valuable than we think. I want to give you a quote from a secular British feminist who recently caused a stir with a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And this is part of her quote. Sexual liberals came to the hubristic assumption that our society would be uniquely free from the oppression of sexual norms and can function just fine. The last 60 years have proved that assumption to be wrong. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products. Marriage is good. She says, this is all informed by peer-reviewed research, but it shouldn't have to be because it's pretty much what most mothers would tell their daughters if only they were willing to listen. You know, I'm reading, I was reading this book recently, and it was so ironic to me that this a secular feminist marshalling all the latest groundbreaking peer-reviewed research of, of, of science and psychology and all the things, arriving at exactly the same conclusions that Scripture had been giving us all along. And she concludes with all of that that sex is special. And of course, the biblical term for that is Holy. And so Jesus elevates sex far higher than the world does because he says it's not simply a bodily function. It is holy because it reveals something of the intimacy of the Trinity. 
It's part of God's self-revelation. And because it's so holy, because of what it reveals about God, he designed it only to be practiced between a man and a woman so devoted to each other that they're devoted exclusively for life. Only within this bond of mutual, unconditional faithfulness are we free to experience what sex was actually designed for. And so you can sum this up by saying sex is made to flourish within covenantal love. When sex is treated like a consumer product, the reality is it just doesn't deliver what it was made to deliver. So you have this kind of standard advice out there, the standard wisdom that says, well, you know, two people get together, they should, they should definitely have sex before they get married because they have to find out whether they're compatible right? Now, there's a certain logic to that, but actually the data shows the opposite. Sex before marriage does not lead to strengthening the relationship. It, It actually weakens the relationship. The data shows that if couples cohabitate before marriage, they're actually more likely to divorce, not less. And the surveys show when they ask people in, in, you know, in sexual relationships who are not married, they say, why, why is it that you're having sex? And the most common answer is to keep the relationship going. There's this constant background pressure that if you don't keep it going, that the other person will go find it somewhere else. And what that, that's a consumer mentality. Always looking for an upgrade, always wondering if you could do better. And so Tim Keller points out, you know, the, the, the advice about making sure you're compatible, it's really just a nice way of saying, I'm making sure I can't do better. <laughs> and so the author of that book that I quoted, she argues, I mean, it just blows my mind. She says, marriage is simply the best way anyone has come up with to allow the benefits of sex to flourish while minimizing the damage that it can produce. That's my summary, that's my paraphrase of a whole chapter that argues that point. And so, it's only when it's taken out of the the consumer realm and into the covenant realm that it can flourish in a way that actually benefits not only men, but women and children and families and society. And so, even though the biblical ethic, a lot of times it's, it, it seems out of date, it's actually in line with the data. For sex to flourish, it has to be harnessed within the proper boundaries. And that boundary is the mutual, unconditional commitment of covenant love. And so, all that brings us to, to another interesting point about the language that Jesus uses, because He's using the same language that all through the Hebrew scriptures it uses to talk about idolatry and greed. So when you read the prophets, when the prophets are denouncing Israel for worshiping other gods, most often they use the term adultery in their, in their critique. And it's a kind of adultery driven by a greedy desire. And so I think what Jesus is doing is he's indicating what's going on at a heart level with all this stuff. Because you have to remember that the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount, he's showing that simply dealing with the surface behavior does not deal with the source of that behavior in our hearts. And so we have to get to the source. And so 
If you're, I'm talking to singles and married people through this whole series. If you're single and you're saying, well, this can't apply to me. I can't be an adulterer because I'm not married. Well, Jesus is saying, no, this actually applies to everyone because this is what's going on here is actually idolatry. And what he's saying is this, okay? The next point, the root of lust is wrong worship. You can read Romans 1 that really goes into the the depth of, of how this happened, how this works. But Romans 1 says, God gave humanity up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped, the, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. I think the best example of this is how pornography works. It's the most obvious example of making sex an idol. And you can go look up the studies. We're finding out more and more as the internet age kind of goes on just how much porn is shaping brains, psyches, patterns of how we treat each other and look at each other. It's shaping the minds and desires of a generation. Porn is making young people hate their bodies more than ever before. It's leading to the expectation of more and more degrading and violent behavior in relationships as normal. And and here's the thing that's even probably most surprising the use of porn is actually leading to a growing, it's not only leading to people, you know, less and less people getting married, it's actually leading to less and less people even having sex. It's actually leading to a disinterest in actual physical relationships. And so, if it's so destructive to our relationships and everybody knows it, there's plenty of studies to show us exactly what it's doing to us. Why does it continue to have such a grip, grip on us? And Jesus says, because it's not actually about the sex. Beneath the behavior, it's being driven. The, beneath the behavior that's dishonoring a person, that's turning them into a thing to be used, is actually a heart looking for something to worship. And we, what happens is we fixate on something and we say, if I can't have that, then I can't be happy. And whatever fills that blank for you in your life, that is an object of worship. And we use things and people when we do that to give us what only God can actually give us. And so that's how sex can even become an idol within marriage. Because if you're looking to your spouse to give you things that only God can give you, you've turned them into an idol. And so that misplaced worship, it shapes misplaced desires, which lead to misplaced behavior. And you have this reciprocal kind of pattern that happens because that behavior then to, it forms habits, which then reinforce our desires. And there's this never ending, it's actually the same pattern of addiction. We're just, just describing addiction, really. Round and round we go. And we're all the while treating people as mere objects to fulfill our desires. And so Jesus says, we have to treat that tendency as seriously as we would amputation of a, of a diseased body part. He says, do whatever it takes to separate yourself from anything that separates you from him. Why? Because actually 
He is the thing that we truly desire. Beneath all this behavior, beneath these misplaced loves and and, and habits and, and behaviors, we have this longing for the love of God. And so what Jesus is saying is that as valuable as sex is, as holy as it is, sex is infinitely less valuable than Christ. He says, if your hand separates you from him, then separate yourself from your hand. If your eye separates you from him, separate yourself from your eye. Do whatever it takes to get Jesus. Because as long as you're treating sex as an idol to fulfill your desire, actually, he says, you're actually separating yourself from him. And you're not only separating yourself from him, but we're separating ourselves from each other. And so it leaves us unable to live out the great commandment, which is the whole purpose of our living. And so I think when we see all that, it starts to make sense why Jesus goes on to talk about divorce. Now, so I was reading this, I I didn't know this before. The, The Jewish idiom for divorce at the time was to separate your wife from your flesh. And that's, It's a reflection of the kind of male-centered language that reflects the fact that at the time, only men could enact a divorce in in Jesus' age. And the common view of the time was that men could divorce their wives for anything that displeased them. Now, there were conservatives that argued differently, but you could easily just go find a court who would back you up on any reason as a man that you you could make up. All you had to do was give her a pink slip to make sure she could remarry. That's what they said. That's, that's following the law. And that was based on their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. And we saw how Jesus critiqued that back in Matthew 19 a few weeks ago. But what he's saying is that kind of divorce that idolizes selfish desire, that idolizes a person's desire at the expense of the relationship, he says that is evil. That is not the picture of love. That is the objectification of a person. It's the idolizing of desire over relationship. And what the idol of lust does is it drives you to divorce relationship for the sake of desire. And people do that all the time and call it love. I've seen people do the most heinous betrayals in the name of love. And it's because of the idol of desire. It's not love at all. If what you think love is driving you to is a disruption and a breaking of your your closest relationships, that even your covenant relationships, then that's a very clear indicator that is not love that is speaking to you. (laughs) Jesus is saying, no, love divorces desire for the sake of relationship. It doesn't separate itself from relationship for the sake of desire. It separates itself from selfish desires for the sake of relationship. And it's so moving to me that I think the, the particular concern that Jesus seems to have for women as he's saying this, because almost always the victim of this system was the woman. In those times, a divorced woman would be left unprotected, unprovided for, with no legal recourse. And because, the, the, because Jesus is saying that that kind of divorce would be bogus in the first place, when she remarried, which would be forced, she'd be forced to do, otherwise 
there'd be no source of income. She'd have to become a prostitute, which often happened. She'd be forced into an adulterous marriage because the first divorce was never legitimate in the first place. Now, obviously, our situation is different in our society. That's no longer the case. But I think the point that's being made here is that none of this, this whole approach, this whole view of it was never God's intent. Moses' teaching on divorce was never meant to be a positive instrument for men and women to use to get their desires. It was never meant to be that. It was only permissible to stop further harm because of the hardness of our hearts. And so the thing that we have to bear in mind through through reading this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount is that just like Jesus was not simply giving us laws, new laws to do with anger. He wasn't just saying, you know, don't just not murder, but also don't call people a fool and you'll be good. He wasn't just saying that. I don't think he's also simply giving us new laws to do with divorce here. He's, when you read it at at surface level, it sounds like an absolute, like a, a simple absolute statement. But I don't think that can be the case because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he goes on to add a second context in which divorce is permittable. And so, you know, I'm treading into controversial waters here. I would argue the best explanation is that the audience didn't need Jesus to fill in the blanks on this because they all knew and accepted the full picture of the Old Testament teaching. Just as if I said to you, it is illegal to carry a gun in New York City. We're like, okay, yeah, that's true. But I don't need to mention the obvious exception, except if you're a police officer, right? Because in our context, we understand, and it it goes without saying. And so we look at, I think when we look at Jesus and Paul together, commenting on the Torah as they were, we see that they they weren't adding anything. They were upholding the restrictions on divorce to be permissible only in cases of sexual morality and abandonment, including neglect and abuse. That's the the picture of what's taught in the Old Testament. I think Jesus and Paul are upholding that. And they're saying it was intended as an emergency measure to prevent further harm. They were actually correcting an abusive of divorce that had become a self-serving way for men to trade up on their wives. And so I don't think this is intended to be an exhaustive teaching on divorce. It's intended to what Jesus is doing is he's revealing that the kingdom heart, the heart of God's kind of love operates with a completely different mentality, a completely different dynamic. And he's saying our sexual desire and marriage itself is to be used in ways that reflect God's covenant faithfulness. This is a... a, There's a verse in Malachi 2.16 that that expresses the heart of that in such a beautiful way. It says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the way we can sum this up is that faithfulness is the essence of covenant love. Love is... Like I already said, love does not make a person divorce relationships for the sake of desire. It makes a person divorce selfish desire for the sake of relationships. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross? Forgoing all possible earthly selfish desires for the sake of 
the relationship that would be formed through his death on the cross for us. That's how Jesus loved us. And it's how God loved his people all the way through scripture. And the word to describe it is faithfulness. Faithfulness, even at great cost, at great inconvenience. Putting the other person first, not discarding them when we don't find them pleasurable, but actually forgoing our selfish desires for the good of the one that we love. And so the, the, the primary way that that is described in scripture is this word chesed. 246 times it's used in the Hebrew Bible. We've preached about it numerous times. And it's most often translated as God's faithfulness or his steadfast love. And this is the kind of love. It's the love of God that remains faithful even when we are faithless. It's the love of God that keeps his promises even when we fail to hold up our end of the agreement. It's the love that time and time, time after time, it shows mercy and forgiveness even when it's undeserved. Bearing with the sins of his people. This is the, this is the kind of love that is part of the name of God that he proclaims to, to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, full of steadfast love to thousands. And there was even a point that we read in Jeremiah 3.8, where God divorced his people. But even that was a separation of love. It was a separate, it was an emergency amputation to save the body. to release them into their idolatry and then call them back. In the beautiful words that follow that, it says, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you with anger. I am merciful. So even as God releases his people into the destructive desires of their hearts, he says, come back to me. Come back. It's like the prodigal, the story of the prodigal son where the father releases the son knowing full well that his desires are going to lead to all kinds of destruction and loneliness, and, 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 and pain. And yet the whole time he's waiting, willing to receive him back, willing to forgive him if only he'll return. That's the love of the covenant God. This is why Dr. Julie Slattery, she wrote a book called Rethinking Sexuality, and she says, God intentionally created our sexuality to tell the story of his covenant love. Your sexuality tells the story of God's intention to draw you into his covenant love, the celebration of intimacy with him and the devastation of betraying him. Written within your sexuality are echoes of an eternal invisible truth. And so where all this takes us is that just as the source of lust and self-centered divorce, Jesus says it was, it was motivated by wrong worship, well, then the way to fix it is through right worship. The way that God, you see this right from the beginning of the Bible, the way that Adam and Eve broke faith with God. 
right? They broke trust with God. Well, how does God set this plan in motion for the redemption, the salvation of the world? He picks a man and asks him to trust him. It's the restoration of faith. And because Abraham had faith, it says he was counted as righteous. And so this is our last point that only God's faithfulness reshapes our desires and our habits. It's only when we're captivated by the vision of this faithful love of God that we can be changed. It deals with the root of this wrong worship in our hearts because we see God and we see him and we see him in Christ. We see what Jesus did for us on the cross and we say, Jesus, if that's true, then I have to have you. I can't be happy. I can't be, I can't be fulfilled. I can't live without you, Jesus. And that's the cry of a heart that is worshiping him. Whatever else I get, Lord, I have to have you. And when you're captivated by that kind of vision, it begins to reshape your desires. And as you build habits, you begin to reinforce that desire. And so if your addiction, if you find yourself in addiction to to lust, and the answer, just like any addiction, it's not just stopping the bad behavior. It's addressing the source of that behavior. And then it's building habits that build health. It's replacing it with healthy habits. St. Augustine said, the problem is not that we love too much, but that we love the wrong things. And so our, ha- our hearts have to be captivated by a better love. Now, I want to finish by illustrating that with a story. And I've told this before here, but I don't think I've told it in Bethlehem. There's an ancient Greek myth that told of the sirens who would shipwreck sailors by the destructive or, or, or seductive beauty of their voices. And so... If you read Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus, he has to sail past the sirens and to make it past the sirens, he, he gets his men to tie him to the mast of the ship and he asks the men to all put wax in their ears so they can't hear him. But Odysseus wants to hear the song. He wants to sail past and to hear the song, but not suffer the consequences. And I think that's a perfect picture of exactly how we so often treat our sins and our addictions is that we want to sail as close as possible to the rocks and tie ourselves to the mast so we can still see it and, and hear it and enjoy it, but not so close that we are destroyed. And it's this picture of constantly battling and suffering like this, this travail of our desires as if they're this inescapable thing. But there's a better way. In the story of Orpheus Orpheus has to sail past the sirens. He knows he has to go past them. And what he does is he brings a musician. And he tells the musician, when the sirens begin to sing, you start to play. Play a sweeter tune. A more desirable tune that breaks the spell and the, and the, the power of the siren song. It robs them of their power. And so I know in this series, we've wanted to be 
practical and, and, you know, in America, we're very practically oriented. We want the five steps and the three, you know. (laughs) And I can give you books about that that will go into so much more detail than I could possibly do in a sermon. But here's the only thing I know how to do is to talk to you about Jesus. He's a better tune. He is a better song. And when you taste of him, it ruins you for all the lesser things. It ruins you for these false idols that reel you in with promises of fulfillment. And when you give yourself to them, they hang you out to dry. Jesus is the only one that when you put him at the center of your life, you don't get less and less in return. You get more and more and more in return for all eternity. So he's really the only thing I have to offer you. (laughs) He's the only thing. And when your desire is set on him, when your desire is fixated on the real thing, those lesser things begin to lose their grip. And yes, you will still find yourself with habits that you've built in your life over many years, synapses in your brain that will lead you to certain behaviors. And so along with your new desire for Jesus, you have to actually also build healthy habits. You can't just leave a vacuum there. You have to add in healthy things, healthy dynamics of relationship. Be addressing that wrong worship. about. But the first step has to be addressing that wrong worship in our hearts. So my prayer for us is that we would see the desirability of Jesus, the infinite value of knowing him that is so much greater than anything else. And that as we, as our hearts see him and are captivated by him in that way, that it would begin to shape our desires, our habits, our behavior with the faithfulness of our covenant God. So I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to invite the musicians back up. We'll we'll close with a song. And Bethlehem, you can judge for yourselves, time-wise, how you want to do that. But there may be someone here listening. There may be someone online or or in Bethlehem that you're beginning right now in this moment. your, your, Your heart seems to be warming up and you're beginning to see that Jesus may really be the thing that you're after. And if that's you, I want to say that that is the Holy Spirit beginning to touch your heart because you can't do that on your own. That takes the Holy Spirit, that takes Jesus himself revealing his beauty to you. And if you're sensing that, I want to tell you, reach out and grab him with everything you've got. Give, him, give yourself to him with, with no reserve and he will utterly transform your life. That's my testimony. It's a testimony of so many of us who have given ourselves to Jesus. And so if that's you today, just come to him and talk to him and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for all the, all the ways I've, I've gone out looking for things and, and made a mess of my life in sin. Jesus, thank you that you love me so much that even when I wanted nothing to do with you, you died for me. Jesus, I believe that. And I want to follow you for the rest of my life. I want to taste the real thing. So come, Lord Jesus. 
Accept me, forgive me, make me your child right now and give me your Holy Spirit. Make me a new person. Amen. And if you prayed that for the first time, I know several people last week prayed that and never came and told anybody, I want you to come tell us because we got to walk this out together. So if you were here last week or if it was online or in Bethlehem and you, you made a response to Jesus, talk to me, talk to one of the elders, talk to one of the leaders, talk to the prayer team, whoever, just tell somebody because we love you and we want to walk this out with you. So why don't we stand together and I'll pray in closing. Father, we thank you for your covenant love that was faithful to us even when we, when we were faithless to you. Jesus, would you captivate our hearts with a vision of who you are, of your beauty, of your, your love, your strong desire towards us, Lord, that led you to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we pray that that faithful desire would transform our lives, that it would be a characteristic of our relationships, Lord, that we would be known as people who put their own desires to the side for the sake of those we love. Even when all the world around us teaches the opposite and lives out the opposite, Lord, would we experience the joy of what it means to love like you love? We ask you, Lord, in the power and the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word JESUS to 610-816-6062.